This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome aboard. First order of business, always a pleasure to welcome a new affiliate, KGBRFM, Medford, Oregon, 92.7. And uh, that's only the second uh, FM station uh, that we, um, we have. It's always kind of cool to get an FM station. This is uh, affiliate number 21 for those keeping score. But we have an FM station, I believe, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And uh, KGBR-FM Medford, uh, Oregon. That's, I believe, in the southern part of the Beaver State. And I uh, just went on their website. First of all, uh, thanks for um, you know bringing me aboard. Delighted to be part of the KGBR-FM, or the Bridge family, I should say. And uh, went on their website. And they have a, a very... Uh, First thing I went on, I noticed, of course, I'm I'm very happy to be part of KGBR. They have the Rolling Stones prominently displayed on the homepage, a big Rolling Stones fan. And it's a thrill to be on an FM, an adult contemporary rock station, uh, because I'm kind of a classic rock guy, if you uh, didn't know that. Uh, but on the KGBR FM uh, homepage, they have a section or a page entitled The Moron Patrol. So I naturally gravitated towards that, clicked on that, and they feature a YouTube video of an inebriated gentleman riding a ride a mower. Uh, he's being uh, asked to stop the mower because he's obviously drunk by a police officer. He refuses, and then he's tasered. So that's The uh, the Moron Patrol at KGBRFM, Medford, Oregon. Uh, tonight, episode six of our on again, off again, a series on JFK. We call JFK connecting the dots. And if you don't know or haven't been following, uh, every um, every couple of months we hit you with a couple of uh, installments back to back. You know, this Sunday, next Sunday, or this week, next week, with uh, James D. Eugenio, our assassination researcher and the author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. And as I say, this is week six, and we're going to continue this right on up until November 22nd as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy. The murder. We often we forget to use that word, right? Assassination tends to be very clinical. But this was 
a murder, a cold-blooded murder, not only of a president, but of a husband, a father. Uh, and uh, we're, uh, we're sort of dissecting it uh, and, and coming at it from different uh, angles. I like to say we're coming at you in more ways than Louis Tiant. Base, real baseball fans will understand that analogy. And tonight, we're going to, in episode six, we're going to examine the JFK assassination through the lens of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Now, what was the House Select Committee on Assassinations, you ask? Well, that was established in 1976 to investigate not only the assassination of John F. Kennedy, but also, people forget, uh, it was also formed to, to investigate the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and also the shooting of Alabama Governor George Wallace. And the committee uh, did its work, investigated, and concluded in 1978, issued a final report, and concluded, and people also forget this, it concluded that Kennedy was very likely assassinated as a result of a conspiracy, obviously in stark contrast to the work of the Warren Commission a decade earlier. However, as we are about to discover in this hour of the program, what started out with, with very high expectations and high hopes that this House Select Committee on Assassinations was going to do a thorough job, finally investigate it and, and look at the evidence, re-examine the, the autopsy. And of, and of course, this committee came about largely because one year earlier, the Sapruder film was viewed by millions of Americans for the very first time. When people saw that, there was such a clamor and such an uproar and a copy of that film fell into the hands of a U.S. representative, and he sort of took the bull by the horns and demanded uh, or, or passed a bill, started a bill that eventually uh, led to the House Select Committee on Assassinations. However, as we're about to discover, as I say, uh, all those high expectations quickly uh, went away. And it's all detailed, actually, in Chapter 15 of Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuban, the Garrison case. James D. Eugenio, welcome once again. How are you, my friend? Oh, not bad. Not bad. I, I should correct something, though. It, it didn't investigate the Wallace shooting. It was only the Kennedy, John F. Kennedy and the Martin Luther King case. Ah, it didn't. The okay. Committee. I stand corrected. My right. information had that it did. Anyway, in, in any regard, we're here to focus on JFK, obviously. And, right. and right. Uh, the, I mean, the chapter of your book really says it all. Blakey buries the case. In other words... All those high expectations quickly went away. First of all, let's let's talk about um, the, the 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 formation. I mentioned, you know, the Zapruder film being aired on Geraldo Rivera's show in '75. Obviously, very instrumental in in getting that done. But 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 you see, there's there's there was a lot more to it. Sure. Than that. Yes. Absolutely. That, that was that was clearly the biggest impetus. Okay. I, I, at least I believe so. But that was really, if you look at historically. You really couldn't ask for a much better time or milieu uh, to really, really reopen the Kennedy case because you're absolutely correct. For the first time, the national audience saw the Zapruder film, which had an absolutely electric effect. All right. I'll never forget where I was, you know, watching that thing. And how stunned I was when I saw it. All right. Now, 
But in addition to that, you also had, number one, the aftermath of Watergate, okay, where people now were beginning to see, hmm, wow, conspiracies really do happen, all right, and people do try and cover them up. But also, and this is something that usually gets overlooked, in the aftermath of Watergate, there were a lot of people on the Watergate committee, like Howard Baker, who felt that the CIA had a lot more to do in Watergate than they cared to admit. And so that leftover residue started both the Pike Committee in the House and the Church Committee in the Senate. Okay? Now, for people who aren't old enough, I don't know, are you old enough to know what I'm talking about there? Just barely. Okay. <laughs> those that really, historically speaking, those two committees were the only time that the CIA and the FBI were really investigated by Congress. Okay? And if you can get the church committee volumes, very difficult to get, you'll see the, the only investigation ever done you know, by the, of the intelligence community by Congress, all right? And I should add one more thing. In 1975, when the church committee was beginning, there was also the revelation about the Oswald visiting the FBI office in Dallas. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about there, Supposedly, sometime between November the 7th and November the 12th, Oswald visited the FBI headquarters in Dallas. The guy who was supposed to be handling his case file, Jim Hosty, wasn't there. Okay? So, Oswald supposedly left a note. All right? Uh, I think two days after the assassination, after Oswald was killed... Gordon Shanklin, the chief agent in the Dallas office, uh, was told by his upper-level management guys in Washington that the note needed to be destroyed. Okay? Now, so obviously nobody knows what the note says. You know, and there's been various stories as to what it said. Okay? Now, the most common story is that Oswald left a message saying that he that Hosty better stop talking to his wife or he's going to blow up the FBI headquarters. I've never bought that story because if somebody actually left a note saying that, okay, why would the FBI destroy it, number one? And number two, why wouldn't they interrogate Oswald, making a threat to blow up a building with dozens of people in it? Exactly, okay? exactly. Yeah. So I've never really found that a very credible story, you know, but we're never going to know what the real story was, you know, because, in the, well, anyway, that story got out there for the first time. Now, to set the stage, in 1974, there was something called the Rockefeller Commission, which was the forerunner to the church committee. The Rockefeller Commission did a very mini limited hangout in the Kennedy case. It had to be because David Bellin was the chief counsel, so it ended up being a joke. 
All right. Then you had the church committee, much better investigation led by Senator Richard Schweiker and Senator Gary Hart. That's called Book 5 of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Performance of the Intelligence Agencies as far as the Warren Commission went. That was a really negative report about how the FBI and the CIA performed their functions in giving information to the Warren Commission. It was especially hard on the FBI. All right. Did now, it not, Jim? Did it not? Did it not also uh, sort of connect some dots in terms of the CIA's role in other assassinations? Oh, well, no, that didn't do that, but the Church Committee itself did that. Yes, that's what I mean. Because there's another book to the Church Committee which actually explores those assassination plots, okay? So in in the larger sense, yes, it did. The Church Committee did do that. They investigated a lot of the plots that the CIA was involved in, you know, up up to that time, okay? All right, so, like I said, you, you could hardly ask... For a better atmosphere, you know, for a better season, you know, for a better time to really find out who killed John F. Kennedy. You literally had everything going for you. All right. So. After the Zapruder film was shown, which I believe was in the summer of 1975, the accumulative effect of all these things was to, okay, let's go ahead and reinvestigate and you specifically named the guy, Tom Downing. I don't think you said his name. I didn't. You said Virginia, Kennedy. representative from Virginia. Right. Okay. Yeah. Tom Downing got his own private screening of the Zapruder film. All right. And through his son, by the way, at the law student at the University of Virginia. Okay. Groden showed him, Bob Groden showed him the Zapruder film. And Tom Downing was really kind of outraged when he saw this thing. All right. So he then submitted a bill. And there was more than one bill, and it took him a long time. I mean, this guy deserves so much credit because, man, did he have to work to get this thing passed. And some of the speeches he made on the floor of Congress are really something to read today. All right, it's Jim, really- I, I got to take a time out. We'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll talk right. about the, the formation of the House Select Committee on Assassinations and the makeup, which is very interesting, some of the, uh, the, the, the homicide prosecutors that were part of this. Back with more. JFK Connecting the Dots, Episode 6, here on The Conspiracy Show. Welcome back. Episode 6 of our continuing series on JFK Connecting the Dots with assassination researcher James D. Eugenio, author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. Quickly, Jim, tell people how they can get that book. Well, you can get it um, um, by either going to Amazon.com or you can go to the book's website, Destiny Betrayed. Uh, .com, and there's a number of ways on that website uh, that you can go ahead and order the book. And it, it's available in the, in the bigger bookstores also. And this but those is, are the two best ways. And we should uh, point out, this is, uh, this is the second edition. The first one came out nearly uh, over 20 years ago, but there's been yeah, so, so much... It's over 20 years ago, and there's so much new material that's been declassified by the Assassinations Record Review Board. Which came out I of the... Decided which was one of the things that came out of the, H- the HSCA, did it not? The assassination no, no, record. The ARB movie? originated with Oliver Stone's movie, okay, in 1992. Okay, the first legislation was passed. It declassified a lot of the House Select Committee files that were classified. 
for example, the Lopez report have been classified by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, but with the ARB, that's been pretty much fully declassified now. All right, so that that's how you can get my book, and, okay. and the book is a it's a complete rewrite, which I'm sure you're aware of. Yes, it's about a 95 percent rewrite because all this new material is just so sensational. You know the new stuff that's been declassified. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so we were, let's talk okay, about so the there's, makeup. Okay, so there's there's a how to get my book. Now we were talking about Tom Downing, right? Yes. Yes, the okay. re- representative from Virginia, his son uh, right. got him a copy of the Zapruder film, and when he right. saw it, uh, right. he tried to move heaven and earth to get this bill passed to, to right. form this committee. And it took committee. him quite a while. It took him month after month after month making speech after speech after speech on the floor. you know. And then finally, he got the thing, the bill authorized, okay? And the unfortunate thing about the House Select Committee is that Downing retired. After he got the committee constituted, uh, he had planned on retiring. I, I even asked him this question when I interviewed him down there in Newport News at his law office. And he said that, you know, he had made up his mind that he was going to go ahead and retire after 14 years in the House, you know, and he wanted this to be his last big thing, you know, was to, to get the House Select Committee started. Now, a lot of people involved with the House Select Committee will tell you that if Downing had not retired, there might have been a different result, okay? Because Downing and the first chief counsel, Richard Sprague, had a much better relationship than Henry Gonzalez, who was going to take over the committee. So once Downing gets the committee constituted, then he has to go ahead and find the lawyers to lead the committee, all right? So there's nominations that are submitted, and... One of the guys nominated was a guy named Richard Sprague, who had been the first assistant in Philadelphia. An unbelievably cosmic irony is that he worked for Arlen Specter. Ah, from the Warren Commission. <laughs> yes, the author of the single bullet theory. That is ironic. Right, right. Okay. Now, once Sprague was accepted, at least temporarily, he then went ahead and picked his two deputy counsels, one for the Kennedy case, one for the King case. Okay, A guy named Bob Leonard out of New York was a King guy, and a guy named Bob Tannenbaum out of uh, New York also was the guy for the JFK case. All right? Now, these, when I talk about these guys, these guys were A, number one, prosecuting attorneys. Bob Tannenbaum, for example, never lost a murder case the whole time he was in the homicide department in New York. In fact, I don't think he ever lost a felony case, period. Okay? Uh, Sprague was something like at a record of uh, 77 convictions and one acquittal. Okay? So you're, you're talking some of the – and Leonard was pretty much the same. You're talking some of the really ace number one – uh, prosecuting, which would a complete difference with the Warren Commission, because you try and find a guy there who was, you know, besides Specter, those guys were not really criminal prosecuting attorneys. Most of the guys who worked there, some of them were real estate attorneys, some of them were copyright attorneys. You know, very very few of them were distinguished criminal lawyers. Okay. Let's put it this way. They didn't compare at all 
to these guys. Right. In fact, so, as you, you point out in your book, when Tannenbaum looked at the Warren Commission, he could not believe right. the, the, okay. the holes That's in the case against That's just exactly Oswald. the point I was going to go to now. So obviously when these guys started reviewing the work of the Warren Commission, because they were so experienced in what it actually takes to c- actually convict somebody in a murder case, you know, and back then the standard was even more difficult. You know, it was beyond a reasonable doubt to a moral certainty. Okay, they today it, the the to a moral certainty has dropped. Okay, but back then it was beyond a reasonable doubt to a moral certainty, and you got twelve people. You get twelve people to agree to this. All right. So when they started looking through this material on the Warren Commission, and by the way, that's the first thing they did. They started reviewing the work of the Warren Commission. You know, I mean, they were stunned. You know, like I said, I, you, you quoted me there. Tannenbaum couldn't believe it. You know, he was, he was kind of shocked at the amount of expul- ex- what they call exculpatory material that was left out of the Warren Report. All right. And so as they progressed through, all right, they began to see that there were some very serious problems with this case. All right. And one of the things that they did is they commissioned a photographic slideshow by the best experts in photography on the case, Robert Cutler, Bob Grodin, and the guy who was the best back then, Dick Sprague. All right, this show went on for hours on end, okay? And Sprague was the last guy. His show went on for four hours, all right? And by the time it was over, when I talked to Al Lewis, who was one of the guys that Sprague brought in from Pennsylvania, he said, out of the 13 attorneys, 12 of us realized Oswald was not guilty. (laughs) Once that was over. Right, right. Okay? All right. And so for the first time now, for the first time now, okay, everybody was excited. They're finally going to investigate the Kennedy case Experienced prosecutors who don't have an agenda and essentially want to find the truth are going to try and find out who killed JFK. You know, people like Cyril Wecht and Gaten Fonzie, you know, were exuberant. All right. Because uh, Bob Tannenbaum picked up Fonzie from the church committee. All right. So Sprague submits a budget. All right. And once he submits the budget, the first signs begin to see that a lot of people don't want this case really investigated because you could tell from that budget that Sprague put together this was not going to be simply a review and ratification of the Warren Commission they were going to investigate every single aspect of this case from A to Z they were going to accept nothing that the Warren Commission did they were not going to use any federal investigators. And, of course, this had been the bête noir of the Warren Commission, is that they relied on the FBI, the Secret Service, and the CIA to invest largely, now not completely, but a whole a vast majority of their inquiry was made up by those three bodies. And you can, that's right in the Warren Report, by the way. Just go ahead and look at the warning report in the, in the acknowledgement section, and they'll tell you right there 
you know? The vast majority of stuff they got was from the FBI, the Secret Service, and the CIA, all right? And so Sprague said, no, 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 no. We're, we are not going to use any federal investigators. I'm going to hire my own investigators, and I'm going to have my own analysts also to go through documents. I'm not going to rely on anything that the Warren Commission did, and I'm not going to rely on anything that any federal investigator did previous to me, Okay. Because that's the only way. See, Sprague understood that a really big, big problem with this case was the fact that nobody believed it. Okay? All right? I mean, a lot of people really did not trust the government anymore. Okay? And it began with the Warren Commission. All right? So he said, we have to reestablish credibility. And the only way we're going to reestablish credibility is if we use our own investigators, all right? And so that's exactly what he did. He was going to use his own investigators and hire them on their own. Now, not only was this a problem, not only was this a problem, but another thing that Sprague said he was going to do, he was going to do as much possible as he could in public. See, this was another problem with the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission essentially did almost everything in private, okay? And so they essentially locked themselves away for nine or ten months, and then with this big press hubbaloo at the end, in September of 1964, they said Oswald's guilty. But, but they didn't publish the evidence until a month later, in October, all right? So this is another problem that Sprague understood. You know, we have to be open with the public. We have to do as much as we possibly can, you know, with everyone invited, okay? So we will have credibility. You know, when we decide exactly what happened, we want people to know that we did as much as we possibly could in the open, okay? From the get-go, right. though, Jim, from the get-go, uh, because as you point out in, in, in Destiny Betrayed, you had uh, Tannenbaum, the New York homicide prosecutor, he visited and met with some of the former members of the church committee, Schweiker. And, right. And what did Schweiker tell Tannenbaum from the get-go? All right. He went in there with his chief investigator, Cliff Fenton. All right. And they had a general backgrounder. All right. And then Schweiker asked to meet with him alone. So Fenton left, and it was just Tannenbaum and Schweiker. And Schweiker turned over the file on Maurice Bishop that they had done for the church committee, okay? And he said, once you read this, you'll understand the CIA killed President Kennedy, all right? And Tannenbaum told me that this really impressed him because Schweiker, well, let's put it this way. Schweiker was sort of the downing of the Senate on the Kennedy case. He was a guy who had really, really done a lot of work, even more than Gary Hart, okay? And he really knew what the heck he was talking about. And he was a Republican on top of that. Right, right. So he didn't have any political partisanship. You know, there was no ax to grind, all right? And so when, he, when, he, when Tannenbaum heard this from him, he took this very, very seriously, all right? And so that's one of the things... In fact, when I interviewed Schweiker, I asked him, I said, if you would have been allowed to be on part of the investigation, 
you know, on, on the, you know, if the church committee had really investigated the JFK case, what would you have done? He said, I would have found out who Maurice Bishop was. So, and I guess we have to talk about yeah, who Maurice Bishop was. Exactly. Right? Yeah. We have a okay. couple of minutes. So right. let's... Now, because Antonio Vesciana was one of the leaders of Alpha 66, one of the more radical and militant um, anti-Castro groups in America, sponsored by the CIA. And Vesciana said the case officer for Alpha 66 was Maurice Bishop, okay, which was an alias. All right, so Fonzie made it his business to find out who the heck Maurice Bishop really was. And if you read his book, The Last Investigation, he makes a very, very strong case that Maurice Bishop was David Phillips. Okay? And so that's – and now we can talk about David Phillips for about three days. Okay, but, but David Phillips is a very, very interesting character because, number one, he was part of the leadership of the CIA's anti-fair play for Cuba committee campaign in the summer of 1963. Why is that important? Because it sure as heck looks like that's what Oswald was doing in the summer of 1963. He was an agent provocateur for the CIA discrediting the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Right. Secondly, David Phillips is in Mexico City. He runs the anti-Cuba operations from Mexico City. And he has a very interesting role in the whole thing about Oswald going to Mexico City. Number three, before Phillips died... He had a conversation with his brother, James Phillips, right? And Phillips always suspected that his brother had something to do with the Kennedy assassination. So he asked him in this last call, were you in Dallas the day Kennedy was murdered? And Phillips started weeping and said, yes. And his brother was so disgusted that he hung up on him. And that's the last time they ever talked. Wow. So that's why David Phillips is a very interesting character. David He's Phillips in- slash Maurice Bishop working both sides of the street, yeah. uh, agent provocateur for the uh, uh, Fair Play for Cuba. New Orleans, Mexico City, Dallas. All He's right. in Let's, all three places. We'll take a time out, come back. Destiny Betrayed with James Eugenio, episode six of our JFK series here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. James Eugenio stays with us, author of Destiny Betrayed, as we uh, look at the Kennedy assassination through the lens of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Uh, again, uh, this committee formed, uh, you know, there was, there was great uh, promise uh, and, and optimism that this committee, uh, with its top-notch uh, prosecutors, was going to really get to the bottom of the Kennedy assassination. And uh, obviously we're skipping ahead. There's, you know, far more details and people can, can, can get the book and, and discover this. But I want to talk about uh, how this thing began to unravel and this concerted media campaign to derail the whole process and, and get rid of um, guys like Sprague. How did, why, why, what was going on there? Well, there was, there was no doubt that that's the, – and as you can see in my book, that's, that the, the overwhelming evidence was that the media, you know, along with – certain parts of the intelligence agencies, you know, who use some of their assets in Congress to attack the committee. You know, this was the combination that eventually uh, caused the unraveling of the initial stage of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. I don't think there's any question about that today. All right. Now, what do I, what do I mean by that? Very specifically, 
it was the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the L.A. Times were the leaders. Now, those by far and away, those were not the only ones, but those were the main ones who started to go after Sprague. This was less, le- actually led by the New York Times, a guy named David Burnham, you know, who was sent to Philadelphia. The first guy they had in the New York Times was actually pretty good on Sprague. Okay? They removed him and replaced him with this guy named David Burnham, okay? who was obviously on assignment. And he wrote a five-part series about Sprague, you know, based from his you know, visits to the Philadelphia Inquirer morgue, okay? And every single one of them was derogatory. And at the end of the five-day series, the New York Times went ahead and printed an editorial demanding that Sprague resign. Here's a guy who had, see, this, by the way, is the reason I go into Jim Garrison's background, okay, in one of the early chapters of my book. Because like, like Garrison, Sprague had an impeccable record until he took on the Kennedy assassination. Suddenly, once he takes on the Kennedy assassination, he's an irresponsible uh, nincompoop who is in bed with the mob. <laughs> Right, Which, right. of course, was utterly ridiculous, okay? But they were trying to create a controversy around him, okay? In other words, they were trying to polarize opinion. And this is a recurrent CIA tactic, of course. You want to polarize opinion so you can marginalize, okay, let me just, uh, let me just enemy. Let me just quote from your book here because uh, this really sums it up nicely. The Washington Post uh, reporter Walter Pincus called the House Select Committee on Assassination in February of 1977, quote, perhaps the worst example of congressional inquiry run amok, end quote. Right. And by the way, and Pincus uh, was an intern for the CIA. All right. They've, we've dug that up about Ah, uh-huh. interesting. And all he right. does these kind of jobs for them all the time. Okay. Now, now, once the New York Times thing was in, it was then joined by the Post, which you just quoted, and then it was joined by the L.A. Times. The L.A. Times um, printed an article trying to attack Sprague for wanting to use electronic surveillance all right, in um, his investigation, which was not really true at all. Okay, not really true at all. Okay, Sprague wanted to use something called a PSC, which was a kind of mini lie detector. Okay, you know. Uh, he wasn't going to tap anybody's phone or anything like that. He just wanted to use them. They were in their experimental stage by then, you know, to test witnesses. Okay? That's all. All right? And so he had budgeted that into the budget. So they used this to say that he was going to be somehow trampling on people's civil liberties, which which absolutely crazy. Okay? But that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to start polarizing opinion around Sprague. So then, of course, once this started, then other forms of media then picked it up, okay? You know, like TV, even PBS, all right, picked it up, all right? And so they succeeded. They succeeded in going ahead and and polarizing opinion against Sprague, all right? And so 
it was it was it the the HSCA was what we call a special committee or a select committee. In other words, its budget is not built into the um, congressional rules. So it has to come up for renewal every year. And the CIA and the media did such a good job in polarizing opinion around Sprague, making him a lightning rod. And then they stuck provocateurs in the House Select Committee to rile up Gonzalez against Sprague, you know, that Gonzalez resigned, okay, and then after he resigned, it became clear that the committee could not survive as long as Sprague was still there. All right, got to take a time out, Jim. We'll be back on the other side as we talk about the House Select Committee on Assassinations with James D. Eugenio here on The Conspiracy Show. Welcome back. Last segment of of the evening with James D. Eugenio, author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. Tonight we're examining the work of the U.S. uh, Select Committee on Assassinations. And uh, I want to jump ahead here. We don't have a lot of time, but um, uh, Sprague eventually resigns in, I think, 1977. But as you point out in the book, something very significant happens within 24 hours. One of the key witnesses that had been subpoenaed. Tell me about what happened. George George Mornschild turns up dead in Florida the day that um, he was subpoenaed by Gaten Fonzi. Remind us who he was. Well, George Mornschild was a very, very important character because he was essentially instructed by the CIA to go ahead and be the handler for Lee Harvey Oswald once he got back from Russia. And then he was a guy who introduced him into the white Russian community and essentially introduced him to Ruth and Michael Payne, who become when Oswald, uh, excuse me, when George moved to Haiti in May, well, the Paines essentially took his place. Now, he ends up dead. There's no real in- investigation by the House Select Committee. And obviously, if that, if Sprague would have been in charge, because the DA down there said I was kept on waiting for the House Select Committee to send down an investigator, and nobody came down. Okay. They should have been all over that case because, as I wrote in my book, the death of the Mornschild is very, very, very suspect for a lot of different reasons. Okay, so anyway, once he leaves, Tannenbaum, first Tannenbaum, and then Al Lewis, then become the interim leaders, and then they have a serious problem because of what happened to Sprague. Nobody wants the job. Okay. Yeah, it's like getting and named so, the manager of the New York Yankees. <laughs> yeah. Well, nobody wants a job, and but finally, they come up with this law professor from Cornell named Bob Blakey. Now, from just that little description I gave you, all right, um, you can see that there's a difference between Blakey and Sprague. Because Blakey is really more of an academic. He's not a prosecutor. You know, than he, than he was a practicing prosecutor. Sprague has, was, had been doing this for years on end, prosecuted literally scores of cases, you know, whereas, you know, Blakey really was the only prosecutorial experience he had was as a flunky. And by the way, that's his word, not my word, you know, in the Justice Department. Under, under right? Robert Kennedy. Under Bobby Kennedy, right. Okay, and so... 
So now Blakey comes in, and as I write in the book, the thing to understand about Blakey is he reversed a lot of the policies Sprague had. Okay, number one, he did not do everything out in the open. Uh, he called a press conference to announce that there wouldn't be any more press conferences. All right? All right? Um, he did not rework all of the things at the war. In fact, what's really shocking is when you study the work of the House Select Committee is they accept so much of what the Warren Commission wrote in the Warren Report. For example, they never questioned, really, the whole concept of the crime scene on the sixth floor. If you read what they say, you know, they go with the so-called rifle, that which we discussed, okay, which is very questionable. They go with the so-called three shells, okay, found at the scene. You know, they go with the whole second floor encounter, okay, uh, you know, between Marion Baker and Oswald in the second floor lunchroom. And they go with Oswald leaving and, and the whole taxi cab and bus thing, okay, which is all very – and they have, uh, they have Oswald shooting Tippett, okay. So they went with all of this stuff, okay, which de demanded the utmost scrutiny, all right. And then to – what made it even worse is that, see, one of the things Sprague and Tannenbaum were going to do is they were not going to do any deals with the FBI or CIA. All right? In fact, the CIA made they, it pretty clear they weren't going to cooperate with them. Right. Okay. And so they were going to actually go to court, all right, to get access to the files without any preconditions. All right? Well, Blakey made a deal with the FBI and the CIA that he would have access, but they would have ultimate veto power. Which, what that meant was this. Say, for example, Eddie Lopez and Dan Hardway are investigating Mexico City. The CIA gives them access to all these files. And, and they did, by the way, at least most of them. All right? And so they write this incredible report, one of the greatest reports I've ever seen about the inner workings of the CIA. Well, here was the problem. When it came time to publish a report as part of the House Select Committee volumes, the CIA had veto power over what was going to go into the report published and what was not going to go into the report. So Eddie told me, Jim, you know why the report was not part of the volumes? And I said, no, not really. And he said, because we, me, Dan, a lawyer from the staff, and Blakey, met with four CIA guys to go over the report page by page. It took us something like eight hours to get through the first two paragraphs. So after the first day, you know, Blakey's essentially threw in the towel and could, because the report is 300 pages long. In other words, they would have been there for over a year. Okay, going, right, right. Going through the report. Well, so it, it right? seems like, like where Sprague and Tannenbaum uh, – you know, maybe because of what they heard from Schweiker, were, were intent on sort of focusing on maybe the role of the CIA and, and the FBI, whereas for whatever reason, and you tell me, Blakey wanted to totally switch courses and, and, and look at the mob as maybe, maybe being the perps behind this. Right. See, Gaten Fonzie actually told me this. He said, Jim, from the first day, the very took, when he took over, you know, 
that's what he was concerned with. How can we tie the mafia into this? And what he wanted to do more than anything else was to go ahead and imprint that on the imagination of the public, you know, in a kind of Jungian way, you know, that, that the mob killed Kennedy, all right? And he said it got worse and worse as more and more evidence turned up that the CIA was actually behind it, okay? It got worse and worse as time went on until finally, finally, when the day after the House Select Committee report came out, which didn't really make any judgments about who had really killed Kennedy, Blakey came out with his own private press conference and said the mob killed Kennedy. And then he went ahead and wrote this book, okay, with Dick Billings, who was the uh, staff writer for the House Select Committee, in which they called the plot to kill the president, later reissued his fatal hour, in which they said the mob killed Kennedy, which almost nobody agrees with today. If you go to any reputable uh, researcher, the mob might very likely have been involved, but they didn't kill Kennedy. One of the okay. you, you may, there's a very interesting uh, uh, point you bring up in, the, in in this chapter, and that has to do with the CIA liaison with the committee, a guy by the name of Regis Blayhut. Who was Blayhut? Oh, th- this was one of the most fascinating things that we got from the declassified files. Blayhut was a CIA liaison with the committee. All right, in other words, he arranged things, you know, access for things with the committee and the CIA. He was supposed to be in charge of the uh, access to, among other things, the autopsy materials. All right. Well, to make a long story short, it looks like Blayhut exceeded his authority and tried to take one of the autopsy photographs home to study. All right. And when the HSCA discovered this, Blea tried to deny it, but he flunked, I think, what was it? You just read it, right? Was it two polygraph tests? I think he flunked two polygraph tests, and they found his fingerprints on the inside of the safe. He tried to say the picture was just sitting on top of the safe, and he just picked it up. Right. Well, that couldn't be true because his fingerprints were found on the inside, inside of the safe. Yes, yes. Oh, my. Okay. All right. And so then the CIA, of course, did not want this publicized because it would have made him look even worse, you know. And so they had a meeting with Blakey, and they outlined him four different options he could have. Okay. Says you could investigate it. The Washington police could investigate it. You could hire an independent outside thing to investigate it, or we could investigate it. And Haviland Smith, the guy who was running the, the meeting, said, I tried to discourage him from picking us because I said you won't, you won't have very much credibility if you pick us. But he insisted on the CIA investigating the Blayhead affair. Yeah, now, three, three, he failed three polygraph tests. Tells you that essentially tells you all you need to know about Rob Blakey. Was he, was he trying – he was trying to protect the CIA. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty obvious. Okay? I think it's pretty obvious he was trying to do that. Okay? And then when people tried to advise him about this, you know, he said, oh, come on. I've been working with these guys for 20 years. They never lie to me. <laughs> he really said that. 
Oh, he my. really said that. that I mean, it okay. totally shifted the focus, didn't it? It totally shifted the focus yeah. of, of the um, House Select Committee's on Assassinations work. They were, they were, do you think had Sprague and Tannenbaum uh, continued along the road they were going, I mean, what, what do you think would have happened? What, well, see, that is a really, really, really interesting question. And I guess that's one of the best questions you could ask. Okay. What would have happened if Sprague and Tannenbaum were allowed to actually go ahead and continue? Let's put it this way. With what I know about this case today and what I know about Sprague and Tannenbaum, they would have eventually somehow, some way, they would have found a way to blow up that committee because simply Sprague and Tannenbaum were incorruptible. They would have eventually got to the bottom of things. And I don't think the CIA and I don't think the media and I don't think Washington would have let that happen. Okay? I, you know, I, I hate to say that. I really do. But if you learn something about this case, that's what you learn. You know, it's like what you, that thing you begin your show with from that movie, A Few Good Men. What's that great line? Oh, you can't handle the truth. Yeah, right. Well, see, this country can't handle the truth about the Kennedy assassination. Okay, it's only through shows like yours and several others that they actually get the full airing of the facts. This country can't handle the truth about the JFK case. You know. So, Jim, uh, from here, do you want to do you want to spend some time talking about Garrison? In the, in the next episode. Oh, we haven't done that yet? We have not. I mean, I know it's sort of, we, as I say, we're coming oh, at it from different perspectives. you saving the best for last? <laughs> <laughs> Was that it? Was that the strategy? You're saving the best for last? Well, I just, you know, rather than doing it in a, in a sort of a linear fashion necessarily, we're sort of, you know, we're... we're no, you jumped around the book. We did, but yeah. I, 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 I think we should talk about Garrison. Why don't we do that the next time? Yeah. Okay, fine. All right. Thank you, Jim. We'll talk next, uh, well... Maybe we'll uh, we'll pick it up uh, later in September. All right, that's fine. James D. Eugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba, and the Garrison Case. Hey, say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, the website, www.richardserrett.com. And as always, follow the truth wherever it leads. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, welcome aboard. Just looking through the glass at my uh, technical producer, Tim Spreen, resplendent in his uh, uh, Wonder Woman t-shirt. I'll allow you all to utilize the uh, the power of theater of the mind to imagine what that looks like. Tim, of all the T-shirts, I mean, you've gone to a comic book convention and you've come away with a Wonder Woman T-shirt. Why not, you know, the million-dollar question, why not Thor? Why not the uh, uh, the Iron Man? Why not the Submariner, for crying out loud? Why Wonder Woman? A strong, uh, you know, no question, a strong, uh, you know, female character. But it's, I'm just curious, quickly. Well, 
Well put, well put. And you get that's going to be, you know, you're going to score some points with the ladies for, you know, for having the courage to wear the Wonder Woman T-shirt. Congratulations. Tim Spreen. Hey, um, tonight we're commemorating the, can you believe it? It's 16 years coming up, the uh, the death of Princess Diana in a, uh, a tunnel in Paris, along, of course, with uh, Dori Fayed and uh, the driver, Henri Paul, her bodyguard, of course, uh, uh, terribly injured in that crash. Now, uh, the... Um, a number of British uh, newspapers are sc- with screaming headlines. Was Princess Diana murdered by British uh, by a British soldier? Uh, new evidence come, has come to light, uh, and uh, the Metropolitan Police are assessing credibility of a new claim made in court uh, made in a court martial of an SAS sniper by the name of Danny Nightingale. And the police are again assessing its relevance and credibility. The forces said it is not a reinvestigation into their deaths. Uh, however, we shall see and hear. We explain more is the director of counterintelligence at Executive Intelligence Review, our good friend Jeffrey Steinberg. Hey, Jeffrey, how are you? Terrific, Richard. Great to be back on the show. Listen, before we get into this new information that's uh, come to light regarding uh, an investigation or a re-examining of some some new evidence into the uh, the deaths of uh, Princess uh, Diana and uh, and, uh, Dodi Fayed, uh, I want to set the stage for people. Uh, because you were really on the forefront of, of covering this story from the get-go, uh, going back to, uh, to August of 1997. How did you first get involved in reporting on the, uh, the car accident, the claim the or car accident, quote-unquote, yeah. uh, uh, for Executive Intelligence Review? How did that get started? Well, as it happened, um, Executive Intelligence Review, <clears throat> in the uh, six-month period preceding the uh, death of Princess Diana had published a series of very comprehensive reports on the nature of the British Empire. And our basic starting point was that most people believe that the British Empire sort of ceased to exist sometime between the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and that now they're a sort of a uh, powerless curiosity and... uh, The queen is more of a tourist attraction than a power in the world. And so we set out to really debunk that whole view because, number one, uh, we knew that under the British Commonwealth, you had uh, 57 countries representing about a third of the world's population and a slightly larger percentage of land mass and areas within the Commonwealth controlled an overwhelming majority of the strategic raw material wealth of the planet. We also knew that the uh, operational capabilities of British intelligence and many of the private mercenary spin-offs were deeply involved in conducting uh, imperial operations around the globe and that, uh, if anything, one of their most successful operations was penetrating and establishing a level of political influence bordering on control over much of the political process in the U.S. So in other words, we set out to demonstrate that the British Empire was hardly dead. In that context, we were closely following a several-year fight that was taking place within the upper echelons of the British monarchy and the British establishment in which Princess Diana was playing a very significant role. 
she was not a passerby and was not an inconsequential political personality. She was enormously popular, and she was a tremendous thorn in the side of the British royal family, especially Prince Philip, the royal consort. She had, of course, divorced Prince Charles, and shortly before her death, had given a whole series of very high-visibility interviews. One of them, a famous interview with Robert Frost, had basically led to her saying that her late husband, uh, her divorced husband, Prince Charles, was absolutely unqualified to be the next monarch. And uh, I think it's important to remember that Princess Diana came from the Spencer family, which was an old, old English aristocratic family that had people on the English throne way back when the uh, Windsors were basically uh, quasi-pagans running around in Germany. Yeah, uh, if, I, if, I, if I understand, uh, uh, Jeffrey, her lineage goes back to King Henry VIII and, then, and then subsequently the Stuarts. Uh, so one could argue that she had perhaps as great a claim to the throne as the Windsors. Uh, and, and in fact, more so. Re- remember, the Windsors were German. They were the Saxe-Coburg Gotha who were brought onto the English throne only at the beginning of the 18th century. And in fact, on the eve of World War I, uh, they changed their official designation from the Hanoverians, referring to the Hanover region in Germany, which was their historical ancestral principality. And they changed their name to the Windsors, which was named after one of their castles. So there was no Windsor lineage in English history. It was the German Hanoverians who came onto the English throne in the early 1700s. And so, yes, you're right, Diana had a lineage that went way, way, way back before the current uh, royal family. And so she posed a very high-level political threat to the credibility and the survival of the House of Windsor. She was not necessarily a Republican favoring the elimination of the monarchy, uh, but since there's no formal procedure for succession of one royal family to another, uh, this was high politics. And the idea that this was all about her fling with Dodi Fayed was a cover for a much more serious political confrontation that was going on at the time and that she was at the center of. Sounds like a continuation of the old War of the Roses. Precisely right, precisely. Certain aspects of history within an imperial dynastic system really don't change in character. The names change, the personalities change, uh, the historical setting changes, but the nature of the beast remains more or less persistent. 
Jeffrey Steinberg is with us, the director of counterintelligence at Executive Intelligence Review, in fact, one of the founders of Executive Intelligence Review. Uh, Jeffrey, let's uh, let's talk about well, we had the Lord Stevenson, uh, the Lord Stevens, uh, rather, uh, inquiry into Princess Di's uh, death and Dodi Fayed's death that dragged on for several years. Uh, listen, we'll, um, we'll get into that now uh, and we'll continue it. We've got a break coming up in not too distant future, but let's start the conversation now and, and talk about uh, first the, the, the Lord Stevens uh, inquiry, the Operation Paget, as it was called. Uh, what was the, conclu- the, uh, the conclusion there? Well, the, the important thing about that inquiry is that they did not conclude that it was an accident. Um, in EIR's research work, uh, we basically said there were three possibilities. Uh, drunk driving accident, uh, which we dismissed almost out of hand for a whole variety of reasons. <coughs> Second possibility was um, what would be referred to in American law uh, as basically uh, vehicular homicide. Um, basically, you had a high-speed chase, and at minimum, uh, the paparazzi who were being given advance indication of Princess Diana's travels by British intelligence, and that's something that came out from statements made from a number of the paparazzis, including several that I interviewed personally. Uh, they were getting tipped off. Hey, Diana's arriving at the airport uh, outside of Paris at a certain time on a private plane. Be there and harass the hell out of them. So you had, throughout the whole day, um, high-speed chases from the airport into town and then uh, departing from the Ritz Hotel. So the question was never that it was strictly an accident. The question was, was there a case of manslaughter, uh, aggravated manslaughter, vehicular homicide, based on the fact that there, you know, there was no legitimate reason for there to be that high-speed chase. And then the other question was, would sufficient evidence surface to suggest that the high-speed chase was part of a larger plot and that there was a professional assassination embedded in the day's activities. So the Paget report said that it was vehicular homicide and they placed a certain blame on the driver, Henri Paul, but they also placed the blame on a number of the paparazzi who were engaging in a constant skirmish kind of harassment of Diana and Dodie from the moment that they arrived uh, in Paris right up through to the instant of the crash. So the Paget report got halfway there, but certainly the investigation did not explore all of the avenues and Many, many people had the view, myself included, that there was an absence of evidence that was decisive, but that there were clearly indications that you're dealing with a full-bore assassination in which the paparazzi played a very vital supporting role, whether they were in on it or not. 
is a whole other question, but that there were professional assassins with long experience from conducting these kinds of operations for intelligence agencies who were there and played a participating role. <clears throat> there was the question of the white fiat. Yes, well, there was listen, the question we'll get in, of lasers. There were many things that left unanswered by that pageant inquiry. We'll get into the uh, the uh, the white fiat um, uh, when we come back, but uh, we'll take a time out. Jeffrey Steinberg with us, the the director of counterintelligence for Executive Intelligence Review as we discuss the perhaps murder of Princess Diana as we um, close in commemorating the what is now the 17th anniversary of her death and, of course, Dodie Fayed, Henri Paul. Uh, let's talk about the new information when we come back on the other side. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. We are back with Jeffrey Steinberg from Executive Intelligence Review talking about the uh, murder of... Princess Diana, Dodi Fayed, uh, late August of 1997, one of those pivotal moments in history. I'm sure everyone remembers where they were when they heard the news. And, of course, the great shock was uh, that many of us remember hearing that uh, she was involved in a car accident. Yes, the uh, her, her bodyguard was dead. The driver was dead. I'm sorry, the, the bodyguard was uh, alive. Her driver was dead. Dodi was dead. But Princess Diana uh, didn't appear to be... Uh, terribly injured, and in fact, a physician who was on the scene, the first physician who saw her on the scene, uh, told a friend after uh, helping her out of the car, he expected her to survive, and we'll get into that a little bit as well. Right now, Jeffrey, let's let's talk about the, this new information that has come to light. Uh, an unnamed army source now is saying that a member of the British military was involved in her murder. First of all, where did this story come from, and what do you make of it? Well... <clears throat> there's uh, an ongoing uh, series of legal actions, divorce cases, uh, prosecutions against some British SAS soldiers. And in the course of all of that, <clears throat> the in-laws of a still unnamed British SAS soldier um, informed the uh, hierarchy of the British military that their former son-in-law had uh, essentially boasted to members of the family that Princess Diana had been assassinated as part of a high-level British intelligence operation that he himself had personally participated in. Uh, this unnamed soldier, he's referred to as uh, Soldier N., um, was a highly trained sniper. And so all we have are basically snippets. The uh, British authorities considered it serious enough to uh, open up a brand new investigation, and they've emphasized that the investigation that was announced about a week ago uh, is on the basis of new information. It's not a rehash of the evidence that was reviewed by the Stevens Commission, uh, the Paget investigation. Uh, and so these are new allegations, and there is sufficient enough credibility to warrant uh, a full-scale investigation. Presumably, this unnamed soldier uh, is known in terms of his identity. Obviously, if his former in-laws provided the authorities with the information, they know who he is. 
So um, this is an open-ended question, but it goes back to revelations uh, that were made at the time that the investigation, the initial investigation, was going on. Uh, a former MI5 officer, a former MI6 officer, uh, both came forward and said that the modus operandi of the action against Princess Diana and Dodi Fayed was similar to earlier assassination attempts conducted by British intelligence and that vehicular homicide was a popular method because uh, if you could induce a car crash, then uh, there would be little reason to suspect foul play. And so um, we had Richard Tomlinson and uh, David Shaler, who both provided information that very much parallels what this new witness is saying uh, in terms of a fairly widespread practice by not just British, but by a number of intelligence services to create the conditions where an assassination appears like an accident. Now, the in-laws of this particular uh, member of the uh, British Army, of the SAS unit, he's a sniper. What, how, what role, let's assume for a moment that, that, uh, that Princess Diana was targeted for assassination, what role would a sniper have played in a motor vehicle accident, or, or how would a sniper be involved in something like that? Well, there's two possibilities. Um, number one, uh, that uh, there were, um, first of all, remember, again, the undisputed facts are that there was a high-speed chase from the Ritz Hotel uh, right up to the point of the crash in the tunnel. And so um, there's always the possibility that a sniper was pre-positioned to fire at the car, to fire at the driver, which under those kinds of circumstances would be sufficient uh, to cause a, a, a panic reaction by the driver in a crash. Secondly, there are reports that there were uh, high-frequency light blasts uh, seconds before the crash. And so the question is also whether or not some kind of a laser device was used to blind the driver. It would only take a few seconds, and uh, that would be sufficient to virtually guarantee a crash given the speed uh, at which the car was moving. Of course, there are reports involving uh, a motorcycle, the white Fiat, perhaps another black car, um, that may have actually also contributed by um, ramming the Mercedes carrying Princess Diane and Dodi Fayed at a certain critical point once they went inside the tunnel. There are many possibilities, but I think the critical thing is that this witness coming forward takes this from the domain of hypothetical to a domain where an allegation is being made by a potential eyewitness. Jeffrey Steinberg is with us from Executive Intelligence Review. Uh, Jeffrey, you were one of the first, I believe, uh, to report of 
a physician who happened to be passing by, I, I alluded to this uh, at the top of the segment, uh, and, and rushed over to find Diana in the back seat uh, with no visible injuries. Run us through that, what, what happened and, and who this physician was and what he found. Well, yes, he was just passing by, and um, there is a good Samaritan law in France that uh, if any kind of accident scene has happened and a qualified physician or emergency medical person um, passes by, he's obliged to stop. And so this particular doctor did exactly that. And um, so to his satisfaction, uh, Princess Diana had suffered some internal injuries and was uh, obviously badly, badly shaken. And uh, his conclusion at that moment was that um, she would survive. And uh, he only left the scene when the emergency medical crews arrived a few moments later. So um, his presumption that she was injured but that the injuries were not fatal what happened next is uh, a profound scandal in itself. Um, the emergency rescue crew uh, delayed on the scene for about 45 minutes before they completed the process of putting Princess Diana into the envelope, which was a kind of a mobile emergency room. And when they left the tunnel, instead of proceeding to the nearby military hospital, which is the normal location that you would have brought a high-visibility uh, personality like Princess Diana to, uh, they passed by that site and instead went a considerable distance past that to uh, another hospital and um, all told... At a certain point, this ambulance quasi-emergency uh, room pulled over to the side of the road, not far from the hospital that they eventually took her to, and sat on the side of the road for 10 or 15 minutes. They claimed that they were administering emergency procedures, but uh, nobody really can say for certain what happened. What we do know is that from the time that the initial emergency crew arrived in the tunnel to the time that she was brought into the emergency room at the hospital uh, and was ultimately declared dead on arrival, a span of two hours elapsed. Now, My the word. standard procedures in France are that you would bring a medevac helicopter and that she could have been whisked up and rushed to the emergency room and could have been uh, in surgery within 15 minutes of the arrival of that uh, medevac helicopter. When you have internal bleeding, which was the most likely thing, and in fact the doctor who made the stop at the tunnel uh, saw some significant signs of internal bleeding. What would those have been, the signs? Um, a certain um, glazed eyes, cold skin, several other things that uh, are not the kind of thing that you can see on the surface, but they're telltale signs of 
the internal system going through shock. And we're told by the firemen that we're trying to, uh, to, to extricate her from the vehicle that her heart stopped momentarily as they, they got her out of the vehicle. Is that true? Do, uh, do you believe? There, there are a lot of question marks around that. Um, uh, and, uh, again, the initial response of the physician on the scene uh, would tend to belie that claim. Um, these are all of the answers that still uh, remain to be gotten now, 16 years after the fact. Uh, and unfortunately, um, there are many unanswered questions, many things that really ought to have been explained long ago that still remain unanswered. Why did it take two hours? When the universal standard procedure for internal bleeding anywhere uh, is what's called scoop and run. In other words, you've got to get that person into a full-blown surgical operating room uh, to get inside, find where the internal bleeding is, and stop it before the person just bleeds out, which is what happened to Diana. She bled to death. Yes, basically. So basically, the two-hour period from the time that the emergency crew arrived to when she was delivered dead in the operating room, that was a critical phase of what happened. And we don't know why uh, or who ordered the procedures that were carried out. Uh, do we know who the the uh, ambulance attendants were? Have they ever been interviewed? Because, you know, the skeptics w- would say that, well, well, they would have to have been in on it as well because they would have, one would presume, in those two hours, been taking whatever measures they could outside the hospital uh, to try and save her. But if the instruction was, no, let's just pull over here on the side of the road and let her bleed out, then that would obviously indicate they would have had to have been in on it. The official French story is that um, in France the procedures are different, that these ambulances are not really ambulances, but they're, as I say, quasi-emergency rooms fitted with much more equipment and things like that. So the French claim was that uh, the procedures they used were appropriate and uh, that nothing could have been done. Uh, I interviewed... Uh, and colleagues of mine interviewed at greater length some of the leading emergency response specialists in Paris. Okay, we're going to take a time out. Let's find out what uh, you discovered when we come back. Jeffrey Steinberg, Executive Intelligence Review, here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. We're back with Jeffrey Steinberg from Executive Intelligence Review as we commemorate the 16th anniversary of the uh, death of Princess Diana of Wales and her uh, boyfriend at the time, Dodi Al-Fayed, and, of course, the driver, Henri Paul. Uh, so, the, you interviewed the ambulance attendants, and some of your colleagues did at length. What did you discover? Not the ambulance attendants, but people who actually were higher-ups in the French medical ah, establishment all right, all who right. established the standard procedures. And what they told us is that everything that was done was a complete violation of the procedures that had been set out. And they were among the people who said... In an accident like that, the immediate assumption, especially when there are certain bodily signs, is that you have massive internal bleeding, it's the greatest threat to life, and that therefore you've got to get them 
into surgery at the fastest possible moment. The military hospital near the tunnel was the standard location that would be used, especially when you have a VIP in a life-threatening situation. They violated that procedure. They didn't get her into surgery within 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, they took two hours. So the whole story uh, is just inconsistent with the evidence that we got from the people who actually designed the emergency rescue system for the city of Paris. So let me go back to um, my other question. And would that then suggest that the people that were transporting Princess Diana to hospital were, were being controlled by MI5, MI6? What? Well, it's certainly a, a, a good hypothesis that that's what we're dealing with. And, of course, despite appearances of conflict, there are many close working relations between European intelligence services. So here's where we're getting into, unfortunately, a certain realm of speculation, precisely because the investigations to date uh, excluded the idea of assassination and therefore did not pursue aggressively uh, any of the anomalies in the case. And we've touched on some of them, but there are other anomalies that are equally glaring. Before we get to some of those anomalies that you say are equally glaring, let's uh, um, address a rumor that's been floating around there and just simply, you know, for one reason or another, refuses to die. And that is that the motive uh, for taking uh, the life of Princess Diana and Dodi Fayed was that she was pregnant and that the Windsors would not stand for a, a Muslim heir to the throne. Was she, in fact, pregnant? Do we know with, with 100% certainty that she was or was not pregnant at the time of her death? We don't know. Um, there are adamant denials coming from the French and the British medical examiners who had access to her uh, body after she was pronounced dead. Um, but um, we're relying on the truthfulness and accuracy of their comments. My own view is that um, the idea that the issue here was um, a pregnancy and a potential heir um, is not convincing. Um, there's no question that Prince Philip um, is an absolute racist and certainly would have been furious, and we know he was furious, over Diana's relationship with Dodi Al-Fayed. Uh, but, uh, as I said at the outset, there were grand political factors at play here that involved the very credibility and survival of the House of Windsor. And that represented, to my view, a far more powerful motive if we're dealing here with assassination. In uh, season two... Bono here goes directly to uh, Elizabeth and Philip and Charles. Uh, season two of the uh, Conspiracy Television program, you were uh, kind enough to sit down for an interview uh, up here in Toronto as we um, discussed this very matter. And uh, I believe at that time you, you, you did not 
suspect that, that she was pregnant uh, or that that was, certainly was the motive. An interesting thing, well, we're about to come up onto a break. Uh, if we have time, I'll address it on the other side. But uh, the whole question of, of whether she was even seriously involved with, with Dodi Fayette, her skeptics maintained she was not. Uh, in fact, uh, a prominent skeptic who appeared in that episode uh, said that the the so-called engagement ring was created by Muhammad al-Fayed after uh, the couple were both dead, and um, he prominently displayed it in Herod's, which he owned at the time, um, beneath this statue of the uh, of the couple. But I'll get you to address that perhaps as well, whether they in fact were seriously involved. And we'll discuss much more. Jeffrey Steinberg, Executive Intelligence Review, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Back with Jeffrey Steinberg from EIR. Jeffrey, uh, before we go any further, how do people subscribe to Executive Intelligence Review? Uh, if you go to our website, www.larouchepub.com, that's L-A-R-O-U-C-H-E-P-U-B.com, uh, you will find a link to uh, how to subscribe to the publication. Uh, it's a 50 times a year, basically weekly magazine. It goes out uh, electronically to subscribers who will be given an ID and a password to give them instant access. And I'm happy to say that we're in the process of uh, pretty much completing a project to put the entire archive of every back issue of EIR, which goes back to 1974. Uh, on our website with a very effective search engine. So not only is it the most valuable source of current breaking news and in-depth analysis and very important uh, material about scientific and political and economic options for the future, but it is, uh, if I do say so myself, one of the best archives for any kind of research being conducted into the major political and economic events of the last 40 years. It's certainly a a valuable tool for people like myself as well. So thank you for that, Jeffrey. Uh, that's a huge, you know, monumental task uh, going back to 1974 and, and, our, and archiving and putting all that online. Uh, so back to Princess Diana. Uh, John McNamara, I believe it's John McNamara, was uh, head of security at Harrods, still right. works for Mohammed El-Fayed, former Scotland Yard, uh, and continues to pursue this investigation. Very nice man. Sat down with him uh, not too far from Kensington Palace and interviewed him. He maintains that uh, uh, Dodi Fayed left the Ritz with Princess Diana, was on his way uh, to another hotel where he was going to propose to her and had the ring waiting and everything. Uh, The skeptic, whose name escapes me, a very well-spoken individual as well, uh, who's covered this story from his perspective, uh, says that that's a complete fabrication and that, uh, again, the... The engagement ring, in fact, was was made after the couple died uh, by Muhammad al-Fayed and then, and then displayed prominently at Herod's. Uh, what, do you, what do you know or believe was the, the nature of their relationship? Were they going to get married? Well, I can't say that for certain, but I do know that, you know, it's, it's, it's unambiguous that um, during the course of their uh, stay in Paris that at one point... Dodi Fayed 
did go to a nearby jeweler, uh, and uh, there was a ring um, that was pre-ordered and was picked up. And, uh, yes, they were planning to go to another location. It was basically a uh, an apartment that the uh, Al-Fayed family had elsewhere in Paris. It was obviously a more uh, secure and secluded place than the Ritz Hotel. And so um, this whole idea of basically trashing Mohammed Al-Fayed uh, on the basis of these kinds of claims, I just find scandalous. I, I, I don't... I don't believe it for a minute. I also know John McNamara, and I've had the opportunity to meet Mohammed Al-Fayed on a few occasions, and uh, I believe that they are absolutely passionately committed to getting at the truth no matter where that leads them. So uh, I, I think there were a lot of hacks who were set out, particularly on behalf of the House of Windsor, uh, to just try to basically throw cold water on every single element of this investigation uh, to block uh, anything from seriously being done to get to the truth and get to the bottom of what happened. Henri Paul, the driver, many times Sorry. over the uh, the legal alcohol uh, uh, limit, blood alcohol limit, uh, and yet, this again coming to, to me from John McNamara, the newspaper headlines, even before an autopsy concluded, uh, what Henri Paul's blood alcohol level was. The, the the newspapers in England were already running headlines saying things like Henri Paul drunk pig and things like that. Is that true? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, this is one of the big anomalies uh, that uh, still remains uh, critical to the whole case. Um, the, the blood sample on Henri Paul, that's the sole basis for the claim that he was drunk at the time, uh, also showed levels of carbon monoxide presence uh, that uh, were were lethal. And therefore, there are all kinds of serious, serious um, problems with all of those claims. If that was genuinely Henri Paul's blood sample and it was a uh, pristine sample, then there's no way that he could have even gotten behind the wheel of a car with that level of carbon monoxide presence. Agreed. So yeah. either you buy the blood alcohol level, in which case you're stuck with the carbon monoxide, <clears throat> in which case there's no possible explanation for him being able to literally stand up and walk. And there's video footage of Henri Paul walking out of the Ritz Hotel accompanying Diana and Dodie. And you show no signs whatsoever <clears throat> of this level of either alcohol intoxication or especially alcohol plus carbon monoxide. So there's something absolutely rotten and completely discredited in the use of that blood sample as a basis for concluding that he was drunk. Well, I, I think the, the, the oddity that McNamara was attempting to point out to me was that the headlines were screaming that Henri Paul was a drunk at the time of the accident, even before the autopsy came out. So showing right. some sort of, uh, I don't know, um, a collusion with the media in this regard, I don't know. I don't know what well, to make sure. of it. Well, sure. I mean, it, it, it's one of the things that leads me to still very much lean in the direction that this was not just simply <clears throat> a case of 
paparazzis gone wild, instigated maybe by the monarchy, uh, but vehicular homicide and not a premeditated professional assassination. The fact that the line went out so uniformly and so quickly uh, is indicative to me that some strings were pulled, high-level strings, uh, to put out a line, a cover-up line. Uh, it's, in, in some respects, very reminiscent of some of the things that came up that were clearly part of a cover-up and a pre-organized cover-up in the Kennedy assassination as well. Well, it, course, it's, it's very reminiscent of... professional uh... operation, uh, as we suspect in the case of Princess Diana. The most important thing is that you've got a cover-up in place beforehand. Let's talk about the, uh, the white Fiat Uno, the mystery car inside the Paris tunnel uh, at the time of the accident. Um, you uncovered a lot in this regard as well. What can you tell us about this mystery Fiat Uno that was later apparently recovered? Uh, well, there were a number of eyewitnesses, including an off-duty uh, senior Paris police official <clears throat> who uh, were driving along the same stretch of the road uh, leading into the tunnel where the crash occurred prior to Diana. And several people described uh, the unusual behavior of this white Fiat Uno that was speeding along uh, as if to get to a certain point at a certain time. And when it got within a close proximity of the tunnel, uh, the car virtually came to a stop and was moving along, inching along, and basically uh, arrived at the entrance to the tunnel coincident with the Mercedes carrying Princess Diana Dodi Fayed and the whole entourage of paparazzi speeding behind them. And there were indications that um, the purpose of that white Fiat was to basically hit the Mercedes at a critical point and throw the car into a spin that led to the crash. And there were eyewitnesses, uh, including an English barrister who was celebrating his anniversary at a hotel right nearby, who saw that white car and a second black, darker car uh, coming together out of the tunnel soon after the crash. Also, a number of eyewitnesses said, number one, that they heard two crashes in very rapid succession suggesting that perhaps there was a kind of bumper car operation and then the full-on crash into the one of the pillars inside the tunnel by the Mercedes. So then you also had a number of eyewitnesses, uh, one of whom was driving just ahead of the Mercedes, who saw in the rearview mirror a uh, very, very powerful sudden flash of light and then saw a, a motorcycle speed out of the tunnel. Um, that account could suggest either uh, a uh, paparazzi camera with an extremely uh, high-powered flash or perhaps uh, a laser, which was a rather common blinding weapon uh, that was used for crowd control and other things and was widely available for sale over-the-counter at certain uh, spy shops around Paris. 
The uh, the white Fiat Uno was later discovered, uh, I believe, sort of burned out, and inside, supposedly, the the driver. Um, what can you tell us about that? Well, the, this occurred um, soon after the crash. Um, one of the leading uh, paparazzi operating around Europe uh, who did have a white Fiat Uno uh, was mysteriously found uh, dead in that car, and the car had been set on fire and basically turned to ashes. That was James Anderson. Exactly right. He was paparazzi as well, was he not? Yes, exactly. And he had connections and, to MI5? Uh, yes. Well, look, all of the paparazzi, to uh, be able to actually be successful, uh, cultivated ties to all of the intelligence agencies and police agencies in the countries where they were operating. The reason is pretty obvious. Uh, the name of the game with the paparazzis is to get there a few seconds ahead of everybody else and get that unique photograph that can yes. make it into the tabloids and you know, generate six-figure payouts for one snap of the camera. Listen, Jeff, we're, regrettably, we're out of time. I'm guessing you're going to be covering uh, this uh, latest a bit of information that's being investigated, uh, this SAS, uh, British uh, military sure. connection to her death, and we look forward to uh, hearing your updates on that. Thank you again for this, Jeffrey. My pleasure. All right. Listen, that's it for me. My thanks to Tim Spreen. Back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be aboard. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.